Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 13th, 2021. Okay, if you say so. June 13th, it is. How are you doing? Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah. Well, really? more importantly, how's Hazi doing? Hazi, well, we all know Hazi's doing every minute of the day. He's growing up fast. I'll yes. say this. He's growing up fast. He's two weeks old and he's unrecognizable from when he, when he first uh, debuted. Uh, he's got a more thoughtful look on his face. He, he does seem fascinated by his grandparents. Am I right? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know about that. He's, uh, he, he's interested, though. He's interested in a lot of sounds, more than sights, I think. That's I can't what we decided. say he's really interested. In in sound, well, he, he reacts he just to them. Flails about. Now his eyes focus. His, his no, pupils his eyes, dilate. His eyes don't. Focus. He gives that very thoughtful Hazi glance. I mean, yeah. you know, he and I are. Now, where I, is mummy? We're, we're, we're like minded. We understand uh, the way things go. He listens to the birds. He listens to the bees. He's you know he's uh, attentive to nature. Really? Yes. Okay. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. So in any event, uh, everything's cool here, and uh, the much-awaited event this week, since Hazi's sort of uh, in the fold by now, uh, was the release of In the Heights. In the Heights, the uh, long-anticipated film version of the Broadway play, uh, long-anticipated in the sense that I think it was in the can almost a year ago, but, you know, things being the way they are, it was released just like two days ago. And released the way things are released these days, namely in the movies on the one hand, but also simultaneously on Disney Plus. Streaming. Uh, streaming, which we happen to have. And since we are Hazi housebound, uh, notwithstanding the advantages of seeing something in the theater, we saw it on Disney Plus. Yes, it would really be fun to see it in the theater. It's a film that I think... Fills the screen. Fills the screen. Demands yes. the big screen. Well, I wouldn't say demands, but I would say fills the screen. I'm sure there were advantages sound-wise and sight-wise, because this is a movie filled with production numbers. Filled with... Isn't that, is that Giant fair? Giant Busby Berkeley yes. kind of Well, numbers. literally Busby Berkeley. For those not on top of that, Busby Berkeley did a bunch of musicals in the uh, 30s and uh, 40s, like 42nd Street and... Uh, some more well-known than others, but uh, they would have these large uh, production numbers with a lot of uh, dancers uh, doing things in perfect synchronicity. And his trademark was to have an aerial shot of uh, the dancers moving in a particular way such that it, you, it was like you were looking through, well, what are those things, those viewfinders, uh, kaleidoscope, uh, kaleidoscopic effects. Uh, it was pretty amazing stuff. Uh, and believe well, it or not, of course, of course, you were there in the 30s and 40s. Uh, yeah, to check well, this out, right? but and yet there's no question that in the Heights they do a Busby Berkeley number. It's a pool dance number, and it's clearly oh, an no, homage. Yeah, the, an yeah, homage to Busby. Yeah. To, okay. Well, you don't see a lot of people. Anyway, what you think of the movie? I thought it was very good. I didn't think it was great, but uh, I thought it was very good. What did you think of the movie? Yeah, I thought it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, mainly, I agree with that. Mainly the numbers. Um, we saw the play right on Broadway a mm-hmm. um, hundred years ago, right? Uh, Two thousand eight, I guess. Hundred years ago, exactly and, to uh, the day, right? Right, and um, because Sadie, it was our first. Us to see. It was our first. Uh, we were there with the world, first, ex- you know, experiencing uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, right? Right, hip hop uh, musical, right, and. Um, 
and you know we've been listening to the soundtrack ever since right. and uh, and it was, and it was fun it was it was very fun but it was also engaging in a way that the movie is not right and i don't know if that's a movie versus stage thing i yeah or... I, I i yeah I, I agree with you i mean i i think there are a couple things going on there first of all how generally speaking the play is going to be more engaging than the movie it's very tough for a movie to grab you in the way a live performance is don't okay. you think that's fair uh, number one. Number two it was the first time we heard that kind of music in a musical, right? Mm-hmm. I heard Lin Manuel's music, so it was kind of new and different, and we're kind of blown away by it. But but, it, but um, this is the way I felt, and then uh, t- today I was rereading the review by the New York Times, right. and they do talk about uh, you know uh, here's the bad thing I don't know this I can't remember the star's name. Oh, I have it. I have it here. Uh, it's a very simple name. Very simple name. Which Anthony Ramos. Okay, Anthony Ramos, who we've seen in Hamilton. We know He's, he's been a supporting yeah, player yeah, in a lot we, of Lemon Wells. stuff. Um, they mentioned that he doesn't uh, um, sort of command the stage, so to speak, right. in the movie. Right. That it remains much more... Of a an ensemble. Well, that's there's pluses um, and minuses. Yeah. yeah, and uh, that's what I'm saying. I missed because actually, some, the songs come across as kind of group numbers, right? In the musical, I mean, in the movie, but you really get a sense of character, and you really get drawn in, especially by Usnavi. Usnavi is well, Usnavi is the main character played by main, Anthony Ramos, right? And uh, originated by Lin Manuel. Miranda yeah. himself, and he is a very engaging character right. um, from from nowhere. You mm-hmm. just uh, you get to know him and you like him. Right. And uh, I didn't feel that kind of chemistry with Ramos. Right. And uh, but the uh, the Times sees it as this is not the um, sort of point of the of the film. That is much more. An ensemble piece. Yeah, well, I, I think you are both right, okay? I think, first of all, your observation is correct, and I think the Times is agreeing with you. And they're saying, uh, but that's on purpose, because what they're calling it, it, I don't know if they use the word phrase ensemble piece, um, uh, but I wouldn't use that phrase, but I think... No, they, I don't think they did. I'm okay. just flailing around trying to okay. describe it. Well, here's what I think, and this is, I think, not inconsistent with what you or the Times are saying, and this is why it's not a great musical. Um, and, and that is, it really is a string of production numbers more than anything else, okay? It's an old-fashioned musical, not just because of the Busby Berkeley stuff, mm-hmm. but it, it's, the, it's old-fashioned musical because years ago, they weren't really book musicals. They were musical number after musical number. And you had the musicals, not the ones starring, you know, I'm not talking about My Fair Lady or The Music Man. Those were Brooke musicals. Those were advancements. But prior to those musicals, there were musicals starring Donald O'Connor and and uh, Ray Bolter or more than anyone else. Wait, 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 uh, Ann Miller. It's yeah. an Ann Miller musical where X happens, Y happens, and someone says, let's dance. And that's what this is. Yeah. This yeah. is let's dance. Right. And it's the musical numbers do not advance, with some exceptions, generally speaking, do not advance the plot or the character's development or anything like that. 
It's just let's dance. Anyway, so the numbers are great. The numbers are great. No, but and, I think and, the, I think the point I'm making is the it, dancing but is yeah. is great. The numbers are great, but I think the point I'm making is a significant point. I think that's why it's not a great musical, and that's for the difference between this and Hamilton. Okay. Be, okay. Because what? Well, let me finish. Because in Hamilton, what he did, and he obviously wrote, Miranda wrote Hamilton after this, is he found a way to advance uh, the the action by having dialogue through the hip hop songs, uh, through the, the you know the fast talking. You know, you can think of all the songs that when Manuel's doing in Hamilton, and they are explicating. Okay. They are telling that, the story. They're telling the story. That's not happening here. So this is a, very different from Hamilton yeah, and not the I, same thing. Yeah. But, but, but the dancing is great. And that's like when you think about it, when, when the, the main leads, the big couple in it, the way they communicate, when he sort of in a roundabout way asks her out, and we won't go into details about that, she only says one thing to him. She says, do you dance? That's, that's the way characters interact in this entire film. But they're great dancers. Okay. But now, now you can apologize to me. Because? Because yesterday we had a big fight about the, you and Granger were picking apart all these different aspects of the plot yeah. or something and saying, this isn't consistent, that right. doesn't work. Right. And I said, yeah, but with musicals like this, it's never about the book. You're right. No, you were you know? right. But, but... And you gave me this, oh, yes, the book is very no, no, important no, 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 to no, the musical. No, no, no. When you said in musicals, it's never about the book. That's different. In musicals like this, it's never about the book. I'll agree with that because this is not uh, an, an advanced musical. But this kind of musical, which is as much as a review as anything else, I'd have to agree with you on. All right. Okay. So I would still, if I get I a recommend chance, it. Oh, I, I would recommend still, it. if I get a chance, go to see it in the movies. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't even mind seeing it again. That's Yeah, well, that would have to happen because you've seen it once already. That's right. So if you see it in the movies, it will be for a second time. But uh, anyway, it was fun to think back uh, uh, going to the musical. And uh, we uh, went uh, at uh, Thanksgiving time with Sean Abuhoff, okay, who we'll mention uh, in a few minutes. Yes, this is a yes. There's a lot of themes that run yeah, together in this, yeah. as as so, always. Uh, this carefully Sean, planned podcast. Sean went with us to see this musical, and I, I think he rather enjoyed it as well. Yes, he was a young buck then. All right, well, listen, just uh, still going to college. As, as as we alluded to at the beginning, um, we were lo- we were looking for a musical to see. And Sadie said, "How about in the Heights?" And we said, eh, "I heard something about that. I don't know. I don't know." And she was right. Thank goodness for Sadie. Yes, she pulled okay, it off. So we also, because um, I'm a fan of Nordic mythology. I guess that's the reason. <laughs> it's the only reason I can think of. Yeah, go ahead. Because I'm not really a fan of Marvel, really. Is it Marvel? Yeah, okay. uh, it's Marvel. Um, we, uh, I wanted to take a look at the new Loki show. Yes. Because I, I love Loki, the Loki character. Well, you better explain who mythologically Loki is. Well, I'm not I'm not a real expert on Well, you know a little he's, bit he's about like it. A, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's the trickster. Right. He's a- always in trouble. Well, all I know is from always, Marvel. See? Always getting everybody else in trouble, you know, yeah. whereas <laughs> Thor is, I guess, uh, basically saving the world. Right. You know, and invincible. Is, but isn't, um, he, isn't he like... Loki is totally disreputable. So first of all, Asgard... He's a god, yeah. Let's back up a step with it. So Asgard is the kingdom? Yes. And uh, Loki and um, Thor are half-brothers? Yeah. Well, I, I, 
Now you're putting me on the spot. Oh, I know I, the genealogy. I know according that. to Marvel, they're half brothers. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, I, the and Loki character believes that he's the rightful heir to the throne. Okay. Not Thor, which is accounts for a lot of the friction between them. Thor right. being the guy with the big hammer, the blonde hair, the you know all powerful, whatever mighty, uh, you know Matt Knight idol, and Loki being something different, right? As you put it, the mischievous, yeah. dark-haired minx. Uh, yeah. So Loki now is his own series, um, in Marvel and Marvel has been, has spun out certain character series and, uh, we watched it. Uh, so what did you think of that? Well, you know, I don't, uh, Loki seems to be in a pickle at the moment, so I'm a little concerned, but things seem to usually work out for him. He's awfully clever. Uh, so, uh. I, I think it was enjoyable. You know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Uh, how'd you like it? Uh, I kind of liked it. I liked it more than I thought I would. But let me say a few things about it, and just a couple oh, really? of details. Okay. A couple of details that people might glom onto this or not. Okay. Because here's the first thing you got to know, and this is more than I knew. I had to look it up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Apparently, in the uh, End Game, Avengers End Game movie, and we saw one of those movies. We didn't see everyone in the string. Okay. Uh, Loki uh, sacrifices himself uh, to save Thor so everything can work out when they can defeat Thanos. So he's gone, in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. And the question, if you really are a Marvel devotee, is so how, how do we have this? Because now we've got a series with Loki in it uh, when he's kind of hit the dust. And the answer is, as is now increasingly the case with Marvel, is, yeah, it's sort of Loki, it's sort of not Loki. This is a variant of Loki from a different time stream. This is what Marvel says. Okay. Okay? All right. right. So that's your first clue that something is up. And apparently, the whole... uh, The theme of the whole show, as we watch it, is he's interacting with something called the Time Variance Authority, or the TVA. Uh, Tom Hiddleston plays Loki. He's very, very good. Owen Wilson plays the official he's working with at the TVA. And he's very good, too. And uh, and he's funny. And the TVA's job is to make sure that things happen in the proper time sequence, recognizing that things can get out of the time sequence, as, we're, as we now see with Loki. And people are all over in alternative universes and alternative realities. And it's up to the TVA to straighten things out and put things in their proper place in time. So... Marvel kind of plays with this concept, which a lot of people think is overplayed because it lowers the stakes of anything that happens in the comic books because people get killed, but they're not really killed. And it allows them to mine the intellectual property forever. As a matter of fact, there's a movie coming up with Justice League of America in which DC does the same thing. There's going to be three different Batmans in it. I mean, they're bringing Michael Keaton back as Batman with Ben Affleck. You can see where this goes. So you're asking yourself... Where so this, these imaginary characters aren't real? They're not imaginary that characters. Me? That means that there are alternative universes which are similar, and therefore different characters look the same, but they're not the same. So where does this come from? I figured out where it came from. Where? It came Lesby Berkeley. 1961, very close. 1961, DC Comics. Okay? What they used to do, this guy named uh, Julius Schwartz, who was the editor of DC Comics, the way they did comics at that time often is he and his staff would come up with some kind of, or he would ask the illustrators to come up with a crazy cover. No story. Crazy cover. 
And then it was the job of the writing staff to come up with a story to match that cover. So a guy in the illustration staff named Carmen Infantino comes up with a cover for The Flash in which there are two Flashes on the cover. Barry Allen, who, as we all know, is the, the real Flash, or was for many years, and a, and a guy named Jay Garrick, who had been the real Flash 20, 30 years ago before the comic went out of business for a while. But they're both together, and they're both in Flash uniforms, and they're on the cover. And he hands it to the people in the writing staff and say, come up with an explanation of this, because you have to write a story for this. And what they do is they come up with the idea of the alternative universe, Earth-1 and Earth-2. It turns out Barry Allen's The Flash and Earth-1, Jay Garrick and Earth-2. That's where it all comes from. And that's what we're dealing with back and forth. So it's kind of weird. And I had a very similar experience, by the way, because while we were watching this, the Nets were playing the Bucks in basketball, and I missed the last few minutes, okay? So Granger, by some device, managed to set it up so it replayed for me the last three minutes of the net game. So after this, I'm watching the last three minutes of the net game. Okay, I'm watching a tape of the game. But then it goes on to another game, which is being played at the same time. But I'm eight minutes behind. So I'm watching that game from a certain time frame, even as that game is being played in a different time frame, simultaneously. Okay. All right? Time displacement, Tamsin. Right, but... All right? I mean, were there any faux pas where authorities called in because well, we, the wrong person scored or something? It could have gone badly, but Granger came in just the right time and turned the whole thing off and straightened everything out. So, uh, I, look, I think it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny and it's kind of interesting. We'll see where it goes. I don't think it's meant to be entirely serious, uh, which is all to the good. So uh, I think I kind of re- uh, recommend Loki, at least for now, at least okay. off the first episode. So speaking of Loki... yeah. <clears throat> Of course, I'm all excited about the, you know, release of season two of Lupin. Yes, that's starting now. And uh, I'm very nervous about it. Why? Because it couldn't possibly be as good as season Tempt- one. We're not investors, okay? I know, but it's so disappointing when you love something. Oh, no, no. no and no. then... Uh, it will be fine. There's a great, you know, there are promotional uh, mm. photos of, like, Lupin standing up uh, in the... Uh, Musée d'Orsay, you know how you can go up and be right. in front of the um, clock, or clock something. Yeah, yeah. window right. of the old train station. So what's wrong with that? No, the, it, I, it's so evocative. I'm so excited. I'm so, All right. you know, we'll see. in a spin about it. Well, you've I, got a lot to I see. I can only believe that uh, it'll be another, you know, Mary Poppins the musical. Yes, well, th- take it easy because there's only five episodes in this new segment. So uh, you can't you can't binge. You okay. shouldn't binge. All right, so you, you referred to Rome a moment ago. Oh, you referred to Sean, and and, uh, and that reminds us of Italy because Sean has... Uh, well, also, uh, a lot of stuff going on in Rome, and one of our stories is about weddings. So we'll, we'll get to that. Ooh. I think you wanted to start out with pizza. Well, it's, yes, it's very close. To, uh, uh, we're going to go wade so, into the subject slowly. Right. Of course, uh, when we think of Italy, we think of pizza. Yeah. And... Um, there was an article in the New York Times about uh, Massimo Buccolo, who it, is a medical device salesman yeah. turned pizza entrepreneur. As one does. He has, yeah. uh, you know, um, come up with a pizza vending machine that will create from scratch. Yeah, that's the thing. A fresh pizza for you in three minutes. That's crazy. 
It is crazy. And uh, and they say it, from scratch it has it's got dough. It starts no, it starts it with make, flour. Right, and, flour, right, flour and, and water. And it mixes the dough <laughs> and it you know and it has all kinds of toppings that you can opt in or opt and out. And it's cooked in infrared something or other. And it's super hot and we supposedly. Know, we know about infrared. We have infrared grill. Very hot. Very hot. Very hot. And um, you get it in three minutes. It, limited flavors. Yeah. Uh, costs about uh, five and a half bucks. Right. Individual serving. Um, and, uh, you know, he has high hopes. He thinks it, it, the machine can uh, have enough ingredients to make 100 pizzas. Yeah. So that's pretty good. But the, the thing is about machines is they always break. Well, let's let's let's. I mean, how often uh, you know do you see like a vending machine that serves coffee and it doesn't go in yeah, the but cup? Yeah, but they're going to look at this machine in a regular. Yeah, but you know and, you got to work with this machine because it's going to run out of ingredients, so it's not like it's going to sit there for months. But he thinks it'll be great for you know people who have to eat at odd times, right. uh, et cetera, or late at night when places night. are closed or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he doesn't so. see it displacing uh, the, the normal pizzeria. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, it's you not going to be as good. It's not a pizzeria. Mm-hmm. It's, Actually, uh, the, you know, the negative thing, the depressing thing about the articles, they said, you know, Domino's has made some inroads in Rome, which is unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, can you imagine being in uh, Rome and ordering a Domino's pizza? Uh, wow. And they're very good you at You know, delivery. and Americans will do that because they'll say, well, I know what Domino's tastes like. Oh, so on. I just stick with the Domino's. Because well, listen, when I was living in Rome briefly uh, doing graduate work, uh, the other graduate students would go to like McDonald's, really? et cetera. Yeah. I think Domino's even worse. That was crazy. But to go um, for pizza. But, but anyway, so there are other machines. Most of the other machines don't make it from scratch, though. Right. They are reheating, They're reheating or, or cooking previously made pizzas. Um, pre, right. you know, set uh, Well, pizzas. that's the crazy thing, making from scratch. It, it says three In minutes. Three minutes. That has to be wrong. But uh, That's impossible. Yeah. So they, they quote uh, somebody who tried it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Dario Cuomo, a screenwriter, he said, "Not bad, considering it was made by a robot." Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of stunned. Uh, and the pizza in Rome is pretty great, so it, it would only be odd hours that you would invest in that kind of thing. Okay, so on to Sulmona, which is, uh, I would say, to the east of um, Rome. Okay. Okay. Somewhat uh, either nestled in the uh, Apennines or on the other side of the mountain, not Apennines. Yeah, I think it's nestled in the Apennines. Mm. We remember the Apennines. Right. We rode over them on bikes. That was not easy. When the Apennines okay. were very high. They are mountains. Yeah, they were, those mountains were high then. They were the lower now. But <laughs> now, lower now. Now they were, but, they were uh, big then. Anyway, uh, in Sulmona, Sulmona is uh, the capital of confetti. Not confetti like the little pieces of. Uh, paper right. that you throw around, but confetti as in what we think of as Jordan almonds. Okay, so that to me was the key to the whole story. So I'm reading this thing about it makes this candy and you can't even understand it. They said there are almonds and they put them in chocolate and some throw some sugar on them and it whirls around and it's fantastic and it's like confetti. And I'm thinking of confetti as little granules, but Jordan almonds are not little granules. Okay, I remember Jordan almonds well, do you? Because I grew up with Jordan almonds. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan almonds are pretty good sized. Well, they're almonds. almonds. They're whole almonds. They're candy But you coated. never saw these colored almonds anywhere yeah, else? They're colored. Only I saw them in Jordan almonds. And then I remember my mother making a big deal. You'd see them at the movies as much as anything. Right. And they were not cheap. 
There anyway, would be, there so would, anyway. Wait, hold on. Do you remember there would be expensive option at the movies? You went to Jordan Ammons, you were going you high know, class. We never bought candy All at right. the movies, okay? Yeah. We, we weren't like... Uh, you, you were know, simple people. I we understand. were simple people. I understand. I understand. Popcorn, That's if right. we're lucky. I understand. I understand. It was, it was a know, different time. If you went to the movies and it was just after lunch or dinner, your parents would say, what, what do you need more food? You just ate. Oh, my Sit God. Sit down. Enjoy the movie. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, Italy's been through some tough times, yeah. and there haven't been weddings in Italy for a while. Right. There was a prohibition, of course, because of uh, the pandemic against. And so now... Um, the uh, Italy lifts the year-long ban on wedding receptions. Production of confetti is back. Yeah. Okay. So we have all these people going back to work. I mean, it's just it's just a nice little story in another you know industry that came to a, a a blinding halt to some extent. Although they do mention here a lot of these um, almonds are used in religious celebrations. Right. You know. Popes apparently love them. They say they're okay. gluttonous, but they also have yeah, the, you know gluttonous. That just has to be a bad translation. Yeah, People are really going to say that yeah. about the pope. But how about the was it Lucretia Borgia story there? No, you tell me that. Uh, it's 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 I, it's hard to describe. Oh, it. Lucretia Borgia at the fourteen ninety four nuptials of Lucretia Borgia. Yeah. To which only the most beautiful women of Rome were invited without husbands. Yeah. Uh, the pope presented. A silver cup of confections, which amid much outrageous merriment, were emptied into their bosoms. Yeah, we want to that story. Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you missed that part of the story. Huh? But overlooked it. The Pope, the Pope, dear, yeah. at that time, yeah, actually was Lucretia's daddy. Okay. Okay. And? Don't you understand? Popes, it shouldn't shouldn't be the daddy. Yes. Yeah, okay. Popes like, don't get married. Things were different. Um, it wasn't just a Jordan Ammons that were yeah. different. Yeah. Um, so uh, a lot of things were wild a lot back of, then. Anything anyway, goes. Anyway, <laughs> the attraction to the uh, um, confetti sticks. Yeah. So to speak. And yeah. uh, it's rather a big business, and some of them are, are All right. quite fancy and uh, really fancy flavors. Okay. Well, and not just pastel colors, but uh, you know saffron. Yeah. Flavor, grape, cherry, whiskey. Yeah, okay. Um, so they're, you know. That's gilding the load. Anyway, they're. It's unnecessary. But look, the big news is back. that weddings are back, and, and that's where Sean comes in because he has a wedding scheduled for Italy, to have in Italy. In September. Because remember, Sean played American football in, in, Italy, in Italy after college. As one does. As one does. Yeah, and, uh, and. So he's going back to the scene of the crime. Okay, right. Uh, and to it, share with the so we family just hope, and friends. Hope it all holds that you can have a wedding at the end of September. Well, we're going, aren't we? If everything works out, I mean, unless they lock down Italy or they Italy starts saying no weddings. Be optimistic. Well, I, we're going to see this confetti. I'm sure. I can't imagine we won't. Right. Right. Okay, so we're, we're looking, looking forward, forward to, to it. Yeah. See you there, Sean. Okay. And Stephanie. And Michael. And Ryan. All right. right. No pressure. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So, museum update. Yeah. Which uh, again, should we ever get out and about? We're we're ready to go out. We see people out. Yeah. We've been to the grocery store without masks. Sure. Right. Um. But we've just been uh, 
kind of laying low because we we're, have a bambino. Yes, we're taking care of Hazi. Hazi doesn't want us to leave. No, he doesn't want us to leave, and uh, we're trying to keep him safe. Uh, anyway, uh, so there's some museum stuff going on around, uh, which I uh, which I should mention, and uh, I got two. Uh, that I'm just going to mention briefly. One is at the Morgan Library yeah. in New York. Right. Now, I got such a list in New York. We really need to to uh, go to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, opening June 25th, my mother's birthday. Happy birthday, Viv. She'll be 96. Uh, and it is a um, an exhibition of old, mostly books, bound for Versailles. The Jane Reitzman Book Bindings Collection. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know the Reitzmans, they were super rich. And they were collectors of things from the Ancien Regime. Yeah. Okay. Old French stuff mm-hmm. uh, from, uh, you know, the uh, royalty. Uh, up until, you know, of course their collection start, stops at about, you know, the 1780s because of the old the whole revolution thing mm-hmm. right um, you may have seen the period rooms in the Metropolitan Museum which were all furnished with the uh, fancy you know Louis the this and that uh, furniture etc it you know why you've seen it there because I always we always there are excellent bathrooms in that area so we always cut through all right okay um, not that I've made you actually look at the rooms but anyway um, great collectors and had uh, some, uh, you know, uh, books that belonged to people like uh, Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. and her husband, Louis the Sixteenth, etc. So those would be, books are always, is it still true? I don't know. But uh, historically, books were great things to collect to show off your wealth and your culture and your erudition. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the, the Royals are going to have some fantastic ones. There's also, uh, a nice book with drawings by Francois Boucher. Okay. Uh, of a book that, uh, belonged to Madame de Pompadour, mm-hmm. the chief mistress of Louis Fifteenth. And recently I was reading a biography of her by Nancy Mitford, which was a lot of fun. Um, anyway, that was by, um, it was the book Rodegon by, uh, the play by Pierre Corneille. Okay. Okay. Illustrated by Boucher. These were her, her guys. These were guys she hung out with. And, uh, she, not only was she beautiful, she was actually rather intelligent and interested in theater, put on productions, etc. It's just fun to think of this book, uh, you know, being created for her and dedicated to her. Um, and illustrated by uh, Francois Boucher. Uh, I mean, she's like in her 20s, uh, you know, uh, the dangerous mistress of the king. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's at the Morgan Library. That'd be fun to see. Mm-hmm. And um, then over in uh, Philadelphia, at the African American Museum in Philadelphia, there's a, an exhibition of the um, about the story of Anna Russell Jones, mm-hmm. who was a, a black female uh, designer, basically, of uh, textiles, wallpaper, etc. She had a pretty interesting life. She's the first black woman to graduate 
from the Philadelphia School of Design for Women, which will later be called the Moore um, College of Art and Design. Uh, she um, works uh, as a designer uh, for a bigger company uh, for a while, and then in the 20s and 30s has her own studio uh, in Philadelphia uh, designing for wallpaper, carpet manufacturers, etc. Um, later, she actually... I mean, she does so many things in her life. Uh, um, she joins the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps mm -hmm. and serves during World War II. She's also she's a graphic designer uh, for them as well. After the war, mm -hmm. she actually goes back to school and she ends up uh, doing uh, um, studying medical illustration at Howard University, and she becomes a medical illustrator, among mm -hmm. other things. I, I think uh, it'd be interesting to see this exhibition because she was clearly involved in many, many uh, different phases of art. So Anna Russell Jones, uh, she lived from 1902 to 1995. And uh, you want to find out more about her. There's, there's not much on the computer. You got to go, I think, to this uh, African-American museum in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, all right, uh, we're winding down here, but there was an article that sort of caught my eye, if I can use that phrase, called Blinded by Brighter Headlights. No, it's not just your imagination. A lot of us have had the experience we're driving over the last few years, and we say, geez, that guy has his brights on, can't see. Oh, yeah, I've had people flashing at me Yeah, when my brights are not on. Right. Well, your brights aren't on, and the headlights are brighter, and the reason is that uh, the car makers have done it so. And, and the reason that they do it is because it's considered a feature, not a problem. And it's, it is believed to enhance safety. Uh, and the cars are rated more safely because they have brighter headlights. And that's true for if you're driving it. But it's not good for the person on, on the business end of that who's seeing those highlights, those headlights. Uh, it really is a legitimate issue and to give you an idea i mean we grew up with halogen lights and halogen headlights uh, put out lumens that's how you measure brightness uh between a thousand and fifteen hundred uh leds can measure three thousand and four thousand lumens it's a different deal um and uh the article of times kind of explains uh why it's different why it's troublesome and a lot of people really are quite annoyed by it or almost have to look away um, but there's strangely there's no solution uh, on there. There, there, there. I thought they had there, there's some kind of system that is coming about that will automatically uh, uh, adjust the lighting. Right. Well, they, 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 they've, they've sort of developed it, but it's a long way from being adopted. They're oh, still playing how long with it. Take we've already got the automatic thing that it turns off your brain. Well, I'm not. When I say it's a long way from it's longer from being adopted. I didn't say that they couldn't do it technically. It's a long way from being adopted. It's called Adaptive Driving Beam. Uh, it's widely used in Europe, but it's not yet legal in the United States. Uh, it relies on sensors and can detect oncoming traffic. Yeah, we have right, it we'll in have our it core. Right. Calm um, down, calm down. Uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said it was working to finalize rules allowing, allowing the use of Adaptive Driving Beam, not requiring it. Uh, and it was unclear how long that will take. I mean, all you know, it's a real... Problem, and it's and and it's sort of exacerbated 
by the different heights of different cars because you couldn't possibly theoretically set it up so that the lights are on an angle to go into the lights of the drivers, the oncoming drivers, but because all the cars are different heights, you can't really do that. So, uh, you know, for some people, it's not a small thing. They, talk, they quote some people here who say they close one eye, they drive with one eye when they see another car coming. I, I don't have that kind of issue with it. But uh, it is definitely a different thing, and it is causing a problem. But as you say, they'll probably solve it in their, in their good time, in the fullness of time. Uh, so, so, go yeah. ahead. Um, well, you want to know obituary? Well, yeah, actually, I... A bunch of obituaries. Um, really? They're kind of all tied together. Right. Yeah. Um, I got a, a notice uh, recently that um, a class member, somebody I knew at Princeton, had actually passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlene Cosman. I don't know if you recognize no. uh, that name. And uh, she was, um, I, I can't even remember why I knew her. I mean, yeah. we did not move in uh, the same circles, mm-hmm. uh, you know, art history or working at Commons or anything mm-hmm. like that. But she was, uh, um, she, she was uh, a great singer mm-hmm. at Princeton. Okay. She was in the um, Glee Club, mm-hmm. etc. She was in various acapella groups. Mm-hmm. And she founded the with other people the Cats and Jammers, the first uh, uh, co-ed acapella mm-hmm. singing group mm-hmm. at, at Princeton. And uh, you know, to read about her life, it sounded like she had a, a, just a terrific life. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed about five years ago with something called multi-system atrophy, which basically involves all the systems of your body just. Uh, shutting down mm-hmm. um and uh she um but let me get back to uh, her life a few minutes ago at princeton she had an independent major and she wrote a thesis that was about the mystical themes in medieval lyric poetry so there's half a chance that i i took medieval latin poetry at some mm-hmm. point right. there's half a chance that she was in that class mm-hmm. um so maybe I knew her from that, or, you know, maybe I just knew about her because she was a singer. Um, she was, uh, um, aside from the singing, and she had many great friends, many great adventures. Uh, the Glee Club, I guess, went to all over Europe mm-hmm. uh, in 1974. They sang at uh, Chartres. They sang at St. Mark's in Venice. They sang at Notre Dame in, Par- in Paris. Um, she... Um, when she graduated from Princeton, well, while she was at Princeton, she was buddies with uh, her Her thesis advisor was John Fleming, yeah. uh, one of my favorite professors mm. ever. Right. And she was also buddies with Robert Hollander. Okay? Oh, really? That's funny. Um, who we'll talk about in a moment. When she graduated from Princeton, yeah. she got her MBA at Columbia. Oh, well, maybe you saw her then. No, uh, no, it's because uh, I took a few years before I went to Columbia. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, more and more, it's everything I would have wanted to do at Princeton. Okay, yeah. uh, write a fascinating thesis. They say it's one of the few theses that uh, John Fleming actually kept a copy of, oh, okay. um, and uh, he wrote a, 
a fascinating uh, thesis. I was singing like crazy. I wanted to sing, mm. and I was not uh, a good enough singer to be doing any of the things she was doing. Um, she was apparently a great uh, story joke teller. She was a super Mets fan. Oh well, that's she something. loved dogs, and she um, was the financial officer, the CFO of uh, her family's business, the Dairy Barn Stores. Oh, um, out of Long Island. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Um, so, and she uh, she led the high school choir at her church. She was a member of the church. She was an elder at her church, um, and uh, et cetera, and so forth. So, uh, you know, it was, it, it was interesting to read about her. We haven't at all been in touch, of course, but it's interesting to read about her life and to, you know, have these little touchstones mm -hmm. in common in common even though we had uh, no relationship at all um, so imagine my surprise when uh, a day later I see the obituary for uh, Robert Hollander mm -hmm. which actually he um, passed away in April so, but the obituary was just published he was just a, um, a terrific professor uh, specializing in Dante uh, in fact, Dante's Inferno. Was he at Princeton? He was at Princeton. Oh, really? uh, yes, he was at Princeton. And in fact, people loved his Inferno classes so much, they mm -hmm. actually held reunions. Oh, really? And got together and with him mm -hmm. and uh, would study a particular canto or something. I don't know exactly what they did. Sometimes these reunions were in Italy. Oh, uh, God. But they were extremely devoted to him. You'd see stories about it every once in a while. He was one of the first people to um, uh, jump on the idea of digitizing um, the... Um, Cathedrals? What? The pictures of the, the cathedrals? Not, no, the Inferno. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, the, you know, the interpretations, mm -hmm. the translations, uh, etc. And he raised money in the 80s, okay, he got funding from Apple and AT&T for what they, for some reason, called the Dartmouth-Dante uh, Project. Undergraduates used scanners the size of refrigerators, okay? Mm -hmm. It is a go-to tool, uh, they say, um, for anybody studying uh, the uh, arts and humanities uh, medieval literature uh, today. He... Um, I never took the course. Mm -hmm. I, you know, but I, I knew of him. I knew, uh, I, I seemed to know him pretty well. So I feel like in some of the classes I took in medieval art or whatever, he must have stepped in mm -hmm. now and then uh, to do some kind of guest lecture because I was very much aware of him. And in fact, I actually knew his wife, Jean Hollander. She and uh, Robert team up to do translations mm -hmm. of the Inferno, Purgatorio, mm -hmm. and um, what's the word for heaven? All right. Anyway, you know. You're looking at me to help you with okay. Dante's Inferno? All right. Anyway, uh, all three parts of the Divine uh, Comedy. She was a poet, actually, and mm -hmm. she also wrote, um, was she, she, she taught literature yeah. at Princeton and yeah. some other schools. Uh, okay. I ran into her. I took a course at night uh, at Mercer College, uh -huh. Mercer Community College, yeah. uh, about Dante's Inferno. Uh -huh. and, and she was the teacher. Oh, and there were nice. like three or four of us in the class. Yeah. And uh, I would rush over there during, you know, it was uh, while I was in the throes of being the mother of teenagers. Right. And it was one, you know, it was... My few moments of a step back into, um, you know, 
something fun and slightly intellectual. She was lovely. Mm -hmm. She was uh, just, uh, you know, fantastic. Uh, You know, uh, beautiful and um, knowledgeable Mm -hmm. and very, uh, you know, sort of patient, uh, lovely person. Anyway, she, um, Robert brought the knowledge Mm -hmm. The trans, you know, all the symbolism and understanding and uh, uh, of the uh, uh, works, and she brought, uh, you know, putting it. She brought the music to the words, mm-hmm. uh, and they, you know, did these translations. And uh, you know, some people talk about them as the most readable translations. They lived in Hopewell. Mm-hmm. They were apparently great hikers. She was a great cook. She passed away just. Uh, April 2019. Mm. So, and um, anyway, uh, just, you know, some kind of, uh, I don't know, moments from the past, uh, you know, remembering. uh, All right. Well, I didn't realize that you you had much to say about this. I don't know. uh, Well, you know what? I read the... uh, No, it's perfectly fine. I I read the obituary. They make him sound... Not very interesting at all, yeah, actually. Right. And uh, they they say how you know fabulous and expert and you know um, kind of amazing his understanding of the works uh, are. On the other hand, they say um, his erudition wore down fellow scholars. He reported that A. B. Giamatti. The Renaissance expert and former president of Yale University once asked him, are you going to try to ruin this scene for me too, Hollander? Um, But but I I will tell you, he was fascinating. He was fascinating. And as I said, people were so devoted to his classes, they had reunions. So it was just uh, remarkable to me that um, somehow the times made him seem as dull as they did. All right. Well, uh, you know, we're going to end on something that's uh, sort of less profound than that. But there's an article in Times called The uh, the Best Pick Any Major League Baseball Team Has Ever Made. You remarked to me when we were watching something on sports yesterday that there are like 35 rounds of the draft that there used to be of Major League Baseball, which seems crazy. All right, crazy or not, a lot of people get drafted, and a lot of them in rounds like 20 or 30, and you say they can't possibly make the team. But in any event, there have been over the last X years, 75,000 draft choices. And somebody set out to figure out who was the best draft choice ever. And they did this by virtue of war. You're you're familiar with that wins above replacement, the way they rate players. They use their offensive and defensive skills. They usually do it on an annual basis. War? That's what it's called. Wins above replacement. Replacement, yes. So you take a player and you look at all their stats and you analyze having this guy as opposed to who might replace him will result in the Mets winning seven more games this year. That's wins above. That would be a fantastically important player if you had, if, if you had a war of seven. Usually a very good player has a war of four or something like that okay. uh, for a particular year. So they tried to figure out uh, who had the highest war in terms of a draft choice for a particular team mm-hmm. so that they resulted in the most wins above replacement, which meant they stayed with that team for a long time. And they had obviously were a very skilled player. And that person is a draft choice of the Phillies by the name of Mike Schmidt. Uh, and you remember oh, Mike yeah. Schmidt. Uh, Mike Schmidt uh, played for uh, 18 years. Um uh, 
great home run hitter, uh, led the league many times, was the MVP three different years, uh, 12-time All-Star, great fielder, 10 gold gloves. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I could, it could have been a lot of people. Uh, but in any event, it turns out it's Mike Schmidt. But the story that they write here is as much about the guy who drafted him or the scout who found him as much as anything else. Because Mike Schmidt was a guy playing in a small town and he ended up playing for not a big baseball school, but a school called Ohio University. And he was discovered by a guy named Tony Lucadello, who was an old time scout. And, uh, you know, they mentioned that in Moneyball, they talk in a disparaging way about old time scouts. And Lucadello would say things like, the guy has a good face. Uh, <laughs> he likes the sound of the ball off the bat. He didn't use a radar gun or a stopwatch. Uh, as they say in the Times, he believed in homespun theories, dubious but unimpeachable, that 87% of baseball was played below the waist. I don't know what that means. And that, <laughs> and that no player with glasses should ever be signed. All right? This is an old-time <laughs> scout. But he signed a lot of very famous players. And he would really go in-depth in the background of someone, he would talk to their uh, priest, he would talk to their girlfriend, he could talk to their parents. But once he found he liked somebody, then he tried to keep it quiet. And he would never show up to scout somebody when there were other scouts around because that would indicate that his team had interest. Uh, uh, and matter of fact, he scouted uh, Schmidt by uh, talking a janitor in a nearby building to let him go to the roof and watch him from the roof of a different building. So he could see Schmidt and not create much interest. Uh, he had him pegged as someone they could get in the second round of the draft, not even the first. Um, and in fact, they did take him. He was like the fifth pick in the second round. By amazing coincidence, the player who was the fourth pick directly before Mike Schmidt in that second round is also on the list of the highest uh, WAR players. He's third on the list. He's also a third baseman, and he is George Brett. And the two of them were always linked and always compared, and they were drafted like at the same time, but both in the second round. In any event, ultimately, even though Schmidt was a great success and he's a good guy, et cetera, et cetera, it's a sad story about Luca Dello. Because what happened to Luca Dello was, you know, he was a scout who became an older guy, and he did things the old way. And uh, eventually they, they would never fire Lucadello because he used too much history and had done too much in his career. But he relied on all these guys called bird dogs, these part-time scouts who, who would go and watch games on a part-time basis, get paid. They fired all those folks. And, um, Luke, and apparently Lucadello became uh, despondent uh, about the state of the game and his place uh, in the game. Uh, and basically in 1989, three weeks uh, by coincidence before Mike Schmidt retired, uh, Luco Dello went to an empty baseball field in his hometown in Ohio and he shot himself. Uh, and he committed suicide at the age of 76. And they quote someone here. He says, you know, uh, a Dodger official uh, named Nichols, he says, uh, we see this in players sometimes. Clubs don't really know what to do with people who have kind of gone beyond their value. And they don't fit in with the way they do things. And that's what Tony Lucadello was. And he knew it better than anybody else. Um, so that's kind of a sad story. But uh, Schmidt was a guy who, uh, you know, was first considered a long shot, then considered a project. 
I remember growing up, they used to publish all the batting averages of all the players in the in the leagues. That's the way you got that information in the Times. And the very bottom of that list for one year was a guy I never heard of, who was Mike Schmidt, who was the worst hitter in baseball. And I remember saying to my father, this guy Mike Schmidt is hitting, Schmidt is hitting 200. How long is he going to be in the major leagues? And it turned out it was 18 years. So uh, there you go. So in any event, so that's uh, all we have. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, We have a lot to look forward to. We've got uh, hockey going on. We've got basketball going on. And we have Loki. And And Hussey. And Lupin. And Pepper. Oh, oh my gosh. A lot to look forward to. So until next week. So let's get on it. Um, This is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. And we'll see you again next week with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper.